Welcome, everybody. Good to see you this weekend, and thanks for uh, hanging out at Grace. Welcome, everybody that's watching online. Thanks for joining us. I know a lot of you are doing that this weekend, running around, so thanks for making time to do that. And uh, everybody at the Extension and everybody at Fuel, thanks for uh, being a part of what's going on here at Grace. Uh, It's a great week, and I hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving and enjoyed that. I hope you're looking forward to Christmas, and I hope you had a great Ohio State weekend, right? All God's people said, O-H. <laughs> That's right. And if you didn't say that, Jesus does not love you. So, oh, it's great. I love that game. I love that Ohio State wins, and I love it more that Michigan's dreams are crushed. And that's probably a sin, but at the moment, I don't care. And so, uh, just love it. So, it's fun. But good to be together, and good to, uh, to start the Christmas season. That's what we're going to do this weekend. Uh, we're going to jump into the Christmas season, and we have a great season laid out for you guys. We're going to have a conversation called Firstborn. I'm going to tell you more about it here in a minute. And then uh, we're headed toward our Christmas programs. And uh, if you've never been to one of the Grace's Christmas programs, they're wonderful. You're going to have a blast and they're powerful and meaningful. And we always make sure that the the heart and mind of Jesus is put clearly on display. Uh, So if you have a friend or a loved one that is uncertain about what Christ is like or why he came or what he's up to, that will all be clarified in those Christmas programs. And if you're used to watching online and uh, that's where you've connected with Grace, uh, coming into Christmas is kind of first great step for that. So maybe take advantage of that as well. So I would say this, if you're, if you're a normal part of the Grace Church family, there's 13 Christmas programs, find the one the most inconvenient for you and go to that one, all right? And make seats for other folks, unless you're bringing a guest and then find the one that's most convenient for them and come out to that one or a couple of them and, and take advantage of it. Leading up to that uh, program, though, we're gonna have a conversation that we're calling Firstborn. And this is what we're gonna explore uh, over the next few weekends here. <clears throat> the, the title or the name Firstborn comes out of Colossians chapter one. And starting next week, we're gonna, we're gonna land in Colossians chapter one and we're gonna hang out there for a little bit. But the apostle Paul uses this word. He uses that firstborn. He's talking about Jesus. And he says in Colossians chapter one, Jesus is the, the firstborn over all creation. A little bit later in the passage, he said, he's the head of the body, the church, or you might say the firstborn over the church. And then later on, he says, he's the beginning and the first firstborn from among the dead. And so that's where that title comes from, where that idea comes from, that this is who Jesus is. So I want to talk about that word firstborn for a minute, and and kind of this week and lay down why I I believe that God chose that title for Jesus and what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he laid it out here in Colossians chapter 1. So in the Bible, when you see the term firstborn, uh, the Bible would use it like we use it, and then it would use it a little bit differently, right? So in the Bible, the term firstborn means the oldest, right? It's how we would use it. They say you're the firstborn in the family, or you're the oldest in the family, or you're the practice kid. There's a lot of different ways that we would title that, right? And, uh, and he, that would use it, the Bible uses it the same way. How many of you here are the firstborn in your family? Yeah, you're all up front and you were on time. How about that? And how many of you are the babies like I am? Yeah, right? We're the, yeah, somebody said woo, because we're the fun ones and we're waving our hands back and forth, right? Because we are the ones who torment the firstborns to make 
make them functional human beings. It's like our, jo- our job in life, right? So that we would think of it that way. Uh, it's a birth order thing. Jesus was the oldest in his family. He was the firstborn of the oldest sibling. The Bible would use the term that way. The Bible also, though, would use the word firstborn in the context of the ancient world. And this is, this is the, the part that I really want to dig into a little bit. In the ancient world, being the firstborn had different connotations than it does for us. Usually, in, in our world, you, you tease your older sibling, right? You're the uptight one. You're the one that mom, you're, you're the one that excelled. You're the hero of the family. All that stuff that we hate about our siblings. That, like you would tease about that. In the ancient world, you would never tease the firstborn because they would have the power to like execute you right? And so it's a very different connotation. The ancient world, the way the family worked is this, you would have the patriarch, the father, and when the father died, the authority of the family would go to the firstborn son. It wouldn't go to the mother, it would go to the firstborn son. So in the ancient world, when you were the firstborn, that meant that you took the place of authority over the family, Uh, It would be used in a royal way, like you would be heir to the throne. The closest we would think about it is like Prince Charles, Prince William, you know, kind of thing. There's a secession to being the king, right? And so the firstborn would be that way. The firstborn in the Bible would be used as a term of supremacy, so, so where, where does the line of authority end? Who is the supreme ruler over the family? Well, the firstborn would be that person. And then sometimes the Bible will use it as a pioneering term. You're the first one to go, right? You're the first one to break out. Instead of the first man on the moon, you would say like the firstborn on the moon, right? That you're the first one to do that thing. And in Colossians chapter one, that's how the apostle Paul is using the term. He's using it more in an ancient context than in in our context. So he's saying Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He's the ruler over creation. He has the supreme authority over creation. He's the king of creation, right? Uh, Jesus is the head of or the firstborn over the church. He's the founder and the ruler of the church. He has authority over the church. He, he possesses the, the church. Uh, Jesus is the, is, is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. He's the pioneer. He's the first one who has defeated death himself. He's the first one to kind of enter that realm and conquer it. So he's the firstborn of it. And when Paul is describing Jesus and he's thinking about Jesus, he thinks about him in those terms. It's, a, it's an authority It's a position of rulership. He uses the term supremacy, right? In Colossians chapter one, he is the pioneer. He's the first one to have done these things. Now, what's fascinating is when Jesus's birth is being announced, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and the angel is describing the baby that she's gonna give birth to at Christmas, he makes that announcement through that firstborn lens, through that rulership lens. So let me show you this. If you have your Bible, go to Luke chapter one. You can open up to Luke chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, there's some there in chairs. You can use one of those if you want. 
And then all of this is on the app. You can use that if you want. Luke chapter one, the angel Gabriel is coming to talk to Mary. Let's pick it up in uh, verse 26. The Bible says this, in the, in, the, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Elizabeth was Mary's cousin. God sent an angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at, the, at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus, God named Jesus. Ready? Here it is, verse 32. He will be great and will be called the, the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So before Jesus is called a savior, uh, before a, a, a savior has been born to us, long before he would be kind of announced by the angels and be the baby in the manger and the hope and the joy of salvation, Gabriel, when he is establishing the identity of Jesus Christ, who is this baby gonna be? He establishes that identity in the grid of him being the firstborn. Mary, you need to know he is the Savior. He is the Lamb of God. He's going to take away the sins of the world, but he is also a ruler and a king with authority who has supremacy over all things. So Gabriel says it's, he's going to be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Mary, you need to know this. Yes, he's going to lay his life down. Yes, he's going to be led like an innocent lamb to the slaughter, but he is great. He's going to be called the son of God, the one who is in the rightful position to have authority from his father. He's the firstborn. Later on, Gabriel says that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Uh, David is perhaps the greatest ruler in all of Israel. And Gabriel says to Mary, hey, he's going to rule from David's throne. He is a king in the line of kings and he will occupy that place over all of Israel. He's not just a baby. He's not just a savior. He's not just the lamb of God. He is the king who will resume ruling from the throne of David. Gabriel goes on. He'll roll, rule over Jacob's descendants forever. He, he is going to be the king of Israel. So he is the one who, who will be born. He's born a king. There's a vacancy, so to say. So he's gonna be born a king. He's gonna reestablish that throne. He's gonna rule over all of Israel and his kingdom will never end. He's gonna establish a kingdom and the kingdom is gonna be eternal. He's the firstborn. See, He's the savior. It's the lamb of God. He is all those things, but he is, he is a rightful ruler. He, is, he comes with authority and supremacy and rulership and kingship. And before all the other things about Jesus are announced or described in the Christmas narrative, his kingship is what is established because he's a firstborn. 
Another one of the writers of the Bible is Matthew. Matthew also records a part of the Christmas story, but it's fascinating how he starts the Christmas story. If you go back to the left in your Bible, maybe 50 pages or so, you'll come to Matthew chapter one. Matthew is the one who tells us about the angel's interaction with Joseph. And then he's the one that tells us about the wise men. And then he tells us about the persecution that's gonna come and how Jesus and his family had to flee to, to Egypt to get away from Herod's persecution. So Matthew is very much, much of the Christmas narrative we also draw from Matthew. But it's fascinating, when Matthew starts the Christmas story, he starts the Christmas story with a genealogy. Isn't that weird? Right? You never hear about that part of the Christmas story. You're never like away in a manger, a little town of Bethlehem, joy to the world, the genealogy of Jesus. We never sing about the genealogy. But it's right there at the beginning of the Christmas story. And the reason why Matthew starts the Christmas story with the genealogy of Jesus is to establish Jesus's rightful place as the ruler of Israel. In the ancient world, the way that you prove that you belonged on the throne was your genealogy. It's kind of the same way that we would be familiar with today. I am of a certain family. I have royal blood in me, and I can trace my line to the throne back through the original rulers and it establishes that I am here where I belong today, that I am the rightful heir to that throne. So Matthew, when he begins to tell us about the Christmas story, does not start with the manger. He doesn't start with the choir of angels. He starts with the fact that Jesus is indeed the, the firstborn. And when you read through the genealogy in Matthew chapter one, that's what you see. He goes all the way back to Abraham, the founder of the faith, the founder of Israel, so to say. And he says, yeah, Jesus is, is blood tied all the way back to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then you get through the genealogy a little bit more and you find David. See, he's gonna take David's throne. He's got, he's got David's blood in him, so to say. So, so you, found, you find David and you find Solomon and then you, and you find Rehoboam, another one of the kings, and you just find that he is, he is a king from the line of kings. And then the genealogy goes on and, and there's Hezekiah in there and, and there, there's other rulers that we're less familiar with, Zerubbabel is in there, right? Nobody names their kids Zerubbabel anymore. Some hipster will now probably, but you call him Zub. <laughs> Anyways, like Zerubbabel is in there, right? And so he's establishing that Jesus is from this line. And when Jesus makes a claim to be the king of Israel or the rightful ruler on David's throne, he has the rightful place to do that. Now, this is what gets fascinating about this genealogy. Most of the time in the ancient world, when you establish a genealogy, what you would do is you would scrub it. You would scrub it. Because everybody in our family trees got some crazy uncle, right? Some crazy uncle that did some crazy thing. And everybody has kind of pushed that uncle out of their family, and we don't tell those parts of the family story. In fact, if you're doing Ancestry.com and that leaf comes up, but the leaf is like a prison record, you're like, I won't put that one on the tree, kind of a thing, right? You push it away because you all have a crazy uncle. What's fascinating in the ancient world is they would do that too. They, they would put in all the highlights and they would only tell of the great accomplishments of the people in their family line because they wanted you to understand the majesty and the glory of who they are. They didn't want you to know the ugly parts of the family tree. Jesus's family tree 
is not like that. When you, when you start going through his genealogy, you find these great, great people of faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those kind of things. But you also find people who struggle deeply in their life. Uh, look at verse three. You go through the genealogy, verse three. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. That was left in his genealogy. You know who Tamar was? Maybe you remember who Tamar was? Tamar was a, a deeply troubled young woman. And, and she had a lot of pain in her past, a lot of wounds in her past. And, and kind of the short version is, is that her marriages broke down. She didn't get pregnant. She didn't have a son, which was a very big deal in the ancient world that she wanted a son. So she wanted a son so desperately that what she did was she tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her and became pregnant by him so she could have a child. Tamar had issues. That's an embarrassing story. And it's recorded in the inerrant word of God as a part of Jesus' genealogy. You read on down a little bit. Uh, verse four, Ram was the father of Abimadab. Abimadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Remember who Rahab was? We know, we know two things for sure about Rahab. She was a prostitute and she was a liar. Those are the two things we know for sure. Rahab's profession was that she was a prostitute. And, and the reason Rahab shows up in the Bible is Joshua sent some guys into a city to spy it out because the nation of Israel wanted to conquer it. The spies got found out. Rahab hid them lied to the city officials about it, and they were able to escape. So when Israel came in and conquered the city, the only family they spared was Rahab and her, her uh, descendants. That was it. We don't know that there was some big life change. We don't know that she became Jewish and lived happily ever after. For all we know, she just joined the nation of Israel and continued to practice her trade for the rest of her life. We don't know a lot about Rahab, but we know those two things. Now, normally in the family tree, when there's a prostitute and a liar, you don't, you don't highlight that one. But there's Rahab. David is in here. David was a king, man after God's own heart, walked with the Lord in many, many ways. But David had some spectacular failures in his life. And one of his greatest failures is recorded in, gene in, in Jesus' genealogy. Look at verse 6. And Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Isn't that a weird way to say it? You know who Uriah's wife was? Her name was, remember anybody? Bathsheba. And David and Bathsheba, and there's an incredible story there with David and Bathsheba. It starts with adultery. David is up on the rooftop of his palace one day. He should have been out leading his armies into battle, but he decided to let the minions do that. So he stayed home to chill out. While he was walking on his rooftop, he looked over to another rooftop where there was a beautiful woman taking a bath. That's where ancient people bathed, and that's what she was doing, and he saw her naked, and it turned him on. So he sent for her. You don't say no to the king. He sent for her. She came over to him. He slept with her. He got her pregnant. She was Uriah's wife. Uriah was one of David's most faithful soldiers and followers. So to cover up 
the adultery. David sends for Uriah, gets him drunk, and tries to get him to sleep with his wife so they can blame the pregnancy on him. Uriah is so faithful to his king that he won't do it while the rest of the army's out in battle, so he sleeps at David's doorstep. So that plan didn't work. So David comes up with plan B. He sends Uriah back to the battle, sends a note to one of his generals, says this, everybody go in for attack and on a certain signal, everybody retreat, but don't tell Uriah what the signal is so that he gets wiped out. He gets left up there all alone. And that worked. So David had Uriah murdered. Then he married Bathsheba and the eventual product of their marriage was King Solomon. Usually you push that stuff out of the family tree, right? Nobody really likes those stories, but they're all in Jesus's story. As Matthew is laying out Jesus's credible claims to the throne of David, he's also laying out these broken and hurting people that are part of Jesus's family tree. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? I said this, I believe he did that because the people that lead to Jesus represent the people who are welcomed by Jesus. This king, this firstborn, this rightful ruler is different. He's different than, than all the other kings. His story is different. He doesn't want to hide all of this, this function in his family tree. He wants to utilize it to help us understand his heart and his mind and his desire to know us and walk with us. Jesus's arrival was much more than the arrival of a child that would one day give his life for the sins of humanity. Jesus's arrival was the entry of a powerful, authoritative, sovereign, and eternal king who will rule and reign, who will establish a kingdom, who will establish a church that will last forever. And Matthew proves it, but also explains what this king is like. He is full of majesty and power and glory, but he is also a king that sympathizes with those that he's going to rule who is eventually tempted in every way that we are, who welcomes broken people because he is the product of broken people. How we view that king, how we view that baby alters how we interact with Jesus. This is what I found over the years, that oftentimes when we're looking into the manger and we see the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Bible, the Old Testament calls him the God of Gods. When we see that person there, we tend to react to that in, in one of two extremes. One extreme is to look at Jesus and we only see him through like the glow of the Renaissance, right? So he always has angels around him. He always has a little halo on him. So where he's glowing and we exalt him to his kingly position. We would say if he is the king and he's a righteous king and he's a sinless king and he's a holy king, he's a set apart king, he, he is a God who lives in unapproachable light. We'll kind of lean into all of those truths about Jesus and then we get this mindset that because that's who he is, I cannot approach him. 
He's the God of the mosque. He's the God of the cathedral. He is other than. And who am I that he would be mindful of me? Because I have a past. I am the troubled girl. I am David who made spectacularly poor decisions in his life. I am that person and I cannot even get near that righteous, holy baby. Because he's the firstborn. That's who he is. And I have no right to be even close to him. And we'll pick up the mindset. It usually sounds something like this. If I ever went to church, it would collapse and burn down and get hit by lightning all at once, right? Because I have no, if God knew who I was and what I did, he would not want me near his presence. That's kind of one extreme. The other extreme is probably the one that we struggle with the most in our culture today. And it's this idea that Jesus is the firstborn. He is the lowliest of the lows. He is the servant Jesus. He is the one who made himself nothing. He's just little bitty, itty bitty, little baby, little baby Jesus. And when I look at him, I only see him as like a fuzzy, precious moments, kind of teddy bear Jesus. And I just love that little Jesus. I just want to squeeze his little Jesus cheeks. I just think he's the greatest thing. And you know what that Jesus does? He is here to serve me. He, if I have a bad dream, he makes me feel better. If my life isn't going the way that I want it to go, he fixes it. If I really want something in the name of Jesus, I just say I want it and whammo, it, it shows up. He is like a rabbit's foot that I carry with me. If I get a speeding ticket, he gets me out of my tickets, right? His job, he serves me, he humbles me. The Bible says he wants to be my friend. He wants to be my brother. And Jesus just kind of helps me work my life out so that my life is the way that I dream it's gonna be. If I need a, if I need a B plus instead of a C plus, Jesus is gonna magically change the answers on the, my paper, so that I can get it. And that's who Jesus is. And that's kind of the other extreme. You don't understand. He's a servant and he serves me personally, individually, and custom makes my dreams coming true. He is a righteous, holy God, and he barely wants anything to do with me. And my whole life's goal is to not get hit by a bolt of lightning. He's the firstborn. And when you look at the baby in the manger, and you're grappling with, is he a servant or is he a king? Is he humble or is he full of majesty? When we put Jesus in one of our paradigms, we miss fully who he is. And if we miss fully who he is, we miss the wonder and the power and the life-changing opportunities that he wants to give us. The Apostle Paul, the one who said firstborn, the one who said supremacy, the one who kind of defined Jesus in those terms, he helps us figure out that this kind of paradox of these two positions of Christ's nature. He says this in Philippians chapter two. It's very helpful. He says, who, Jesus is the who. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on the cross. If I lean into this position of saying, you know who Jesus is? He's a servant. He humbled himself. He's obedient. He's the lamb of God who was led like a lamb to the slaughter and died on the cross for me. If I lean into that position, Paul would say, you're right. When you approach the manger, you see the firstborn in there and you think of him in those terms, you're not actually off your rocker. The humble servant firstborn would look at you and say, right, I want to serve you. I love you. If you have pain and you have insecurity and you have anxiety, I actually want you to approach the manger and cast all of those cares upon me. I want to care for you. I do care about the details of your life. If you're a child and you're having a bad dream and you need comforted, I want to comfort you. It's very appropriate to teach your kids to cry out to Jesus that way. If you're an adult and you're uncertain about your future, I want to help make your path straight. Talk to me about that. I really, really care about that. If you have something that's on your heart and it honors me and you're having trouble having that come true, I want you to, to bring those things to me. I want you to remember that I love you. I want you to know that I'm your friend. I want you to know that I'll never leave you or forsake you because as the firstborn, I am that person who will comfort you in those ways. I really care about it. I care about the details of your life because I made myself nothing. I'm the lowest of the lows. I humbled myself. You don't have to tremble in my presence. You can come boldly into the throne room of God. It's okay. I am a servant to you. I came, in fact, I came to serve. And I certainly am obedient to my father who asked me to go to the cross and lay my life down. And when you think of me, it is very appropriate to look at the manger and to think of me in those terms. Those are correct, yet incomplete. And Paul goes on. And he says, because Jesus is that, because that is remnants of the firstborn, you need to know something else about him, the rest of the story, so to say. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. Jesus' name is not incidental. His name is not God sitting around, I don't know, Jeff, Graham, Jesus. I like the Jesus one. Let's go with that. Jesus' name is a purposeful name. It's a regal name. It's not just a child's name. It's not just a song that we would sing. It's not just a concept that we would buy into. His name is given to God, by God, told Mary to name him that on purpose because his name is gonna be exalted and it's going to be above every other name. It's not a name, it's the name. The name of Jesus is the name of the ruler that sits on David's throne. The one who established and built an eternal kingdom that will last forever. The one who has already defeated death. The firstborn is named Jesus. His name is above every other name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is fascinating. When you come to that manger and the baby is in that manger, you're looking at a humble servant 
who will give himself to you and for you and walk with you in every way. And you are looking at the one who every knee will bow before. The name that is above every name. And when I approach that manger, I approach it with an open arm and a bended knee simultaneously. Paul says, you want to know who that baby is? He is Jesus, and every knee in heaven will bow before him. Every angel will bow before Jesus. Why? Because he's the firstborn over creation, and angels were created. He rules them. He reigns them. He is their God. And every angelic being will bow before Jesus in heaven and on earth. Every human being will bow before Jesus. Voluntarily or involuntarily, every human being will bend their knee before Jesus. Every ruler, every king, every, every tyrant, every business titan, every, everybody will come before Christ and we will bow our knee either by our own will or by his before him. Every knee on earth will bow before the one named Jesus. You're gonna kneel before that manger. Every knee in heaven on earth, this is fascinating, and under the earth, every demon will bow before Jesus. Satan himself will bow before Jesus involuntarily, but they will do it. Why? Because he is the exalted one. He is the firstborn. He has supremacy. He is the ruler. He is their king. And they will answer to him. They will all bow and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether you choose to believe it or whether it is eventually so obvious that you cannot deny it, you will kneel before that manger. You will kneel before that God and you will worship the firstborn for who he is. So when you think of him in that extreme, he is other than, he is higher than, he is greater than. The apostle Paul would say, you're right. That's exactly who he is. Well, he's a humble servant. You're right. That's exactly who he is. How do I interact with the firstborn? Kind of all of the above. Because we need a humble, obedient servant and we need a powerful, righteous God. Not a king, the king. Not a Lord, the Lord of Lords. Not a God, the God of gods. And that's who we need in our lives. And that's who we are invited to embrace. And that is who God came, Emmanuel. God came to us so that we could understand the fullness of who he was. Guys, you don't, you don't want a God that is all compassionate all the time and that's all the full extent of his nature. Where everybody gets away with everything no matter what they do. God is the great enabler. I need a God who is fully compassionate, but I also need one who's fully just. Because I need the forgiveness of my sin and I also, to stay sane, I also need to know that the one who hurt me and the one who abused me and the tyrants of the world are gonna answer to a just God. I need a generous God who will give to me and give to me and give to me in his kindness. I need a God who is gentle, who is merciful 
And then I also need a God who his word is truth, who loves me enough to point out my own sin so I even know that I'm in it and can avoid it. I need a God who is real enough to walk through the details of my life because that presentation you need to make at school or work may very well be the biggest thing going on in your life this week. But I also need a God who is the firstborn over all creation, who actually has the power to alter my circumstances, alter my eternal destiny, transform my mind and save my soul. When I come to the manger, I need a humble, obedient servant and the name that is above every name. I, I need the kindest of the kind and the Lord of Lords, the most generous of the generous and the King of Kings that demands worship. I need the most loving of the loving I need the God of gods who is truth unto himself. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And in Jesus, all the Tamars and all the Rahabs of the world can have their past erased, their sins forgiven, and be given new life, be reborn. And all the Davids and all the Solomons and all the Zerubbabels of the world can know that the one that they worship, the one they build temples for, the one that they give glory and majesty to is actually worthy of it, certainly more worthy than they would ever be, even in their power and in their, in their splendor, see. And in Christmas, God gives us all of that. He gives us his son, the firstborn, and in doing so, meets all of our need. I don't know where you stand in relationship with the manger this weekend. Whether you stand with the Tamars, the Davids who are just incredibly bad decision makers sometimes, or whether you stand with the Hezekiahs and the Zerubbabels, these great people of faith. I have no idea the pain of your life, the depth of your sin, the secretiveness of your past. All I know for sure is the one who lays in the manger. I know that that child is a king who's born out of a long line of kings. He is a ruler who is full of power and majesty and glory and supremacy. And he is the king that rules every king. I know there's not a nation on the planet that rises or falls without him blessing it or allowing it to happen. He is the God of gods. I know that your very life's breath, the Bible said, is held in his hand. He has the power of your life in his hand. 
He's the firstborn over creation. What he speaks happens and comes into existence. He's a king from a long line of kings and he has established and will rule over a kingdom that will never end, never be defeated, never falter. I know that's who's in that manger. I also know that the one in that manger is a humble servant who comes from a long line of broken and hurting people. And part of why you make sense to him is because of the family he was raised in. He's not a high priest that doesn't sympathize with us. He's not a distant ruler who doesn't care what our life is about. He's a humble servant who will enter into the grind of life with us, know the details, down to the number of hairs on your head. I don't know all that's going on in your life. I just know who that is. And he is all of the above. If I place Jesus in this paradigm, I'm gonna miss his heart. And if I place Jesus in this paradigm, I'm gonna miss his heart. But if I can learn who the firstborn actually is, I'm gonna open my arms and I'm gonna bow my knee. And in that posture, I'm gonna receive the wonder of the gift of God. This journey we're gonna go on for the next few weeks is gonna be fun. And as we discover more about the firstborn, it's, it might be life-changing for you because when you start to get your head around what it means that he's the firstborn over all creation, that is gonna blow your mind that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation and he was the first to step out of heaven and put skin on and come to earth so that we could understand to him fully God, fully man. It's gonna blow your mind. When you figure out and discover that he is, he is the, the ruler or the firstborn over the church, if you're lonely, if you're scared, if you're insecure, if what you want more than anything in life is to be included and loved and valued, it, it is gonna rock your world that your creator God would create a family for you that he went before and established for your benefit so that you can know him, understand him, glorify him and be loved and embraced while you're on the planet. It's mind boggling what he does with the church. And when we download the idea that he's the firstborn from among the dead, that he, he didn't enter death and exit it, he defeated it. The one who creates life brings victory. And when you think about what that means for you personally, the power that he brings to bear on your life, when you start to understand the hope of heaven, what it means, the people we love are not dead if they're in Christ. That there is reunion, that this part of life is a vapor. It's not, it's not remotely the whole of our existence. 
It's here, it's gone. And it's God himself who created us for immortality, the Bible says. That'll rock your world. That baby is the firstborn. And the ramifications that a king, a sovereign, a servant, someone who became nothing is accessible to you and I, that he is God with us. Guys, that'll change your life on the most profound ways beyond what you could ask or imagine. I think this weekend as the band comes out, I, I would love for you just to spend a little time with the firstborn. Wherever you're at in relationship to the manger, just begin to interact with God there. If you're far off with a closed mind and hard heart and enter your rebellion, Realize that you're going to bow your knee before Christ voluntarily or involuntarily. He is God. He is who he is. Maybe allow that to break through a little bit and at least consider that there's someone greater than yourself. If you're far off in sin and you're a broken, hurting person like a Tamar would have been, and you need help and you need healing and you need reassured that even in our brokenness and our humanity, there's a God who loves us and accepts us. Wherever you're at, go to the manger and begin to interact with Christ there. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. We're grateful for you. And Lord, in these few still moments, would you make yourself more and more real to us? God, even right now, just praying to you, you tell us that when we pray, we boldly enter your throne room. We're in your presence. We're not talking to the air. We're talking to you. And we're welcomed in your presence. It's mind-boggling that our sovereign, our king, our creator would accept us and treat us and interact with us like his child. More than thrilled that we would come to see you. And God, in that, you also say in your word that the fear of the Lord is the beginning. So God, remembering that, that, it, that you are the Lord, you are the firstborn over all. And so God, with, with the open arms and the bowed knee, we come to you and we accept you for who, who you are, not who we've invented you to be. In the depths of our heart, God, Talk to us, reach us, encourage us, comfort us, convict us, challenge us. And God, help us to, to respond to your calling on our life. Work in those ways in these moments, even now, Jesus, in your name. Amen.